I just spent like seven pages talking about a former cheerleader's wish to go to a little concert at the church on the arm of one particular boy. Um, I used to be grappling with the great issues of our time. <laughs> You're listening to the Wheeler Center podcast. The following event was recorded on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country. We pay our respects to the traditional owners of this land, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, as well as their elders past, present and emerging. In this episode of the Wheeler Centre podcast, host Astrid Edwards is joined by acclaimed author Jonathan Franzen to discuss his latest release, Crossroads. Hello and welcome. Jonathan, Melbourne has been starved of international authors, so thank you for being here in the flesh. Now, the world is not in a good way, and in your nonfiction, you have written eloquently about the environment and biodiversity and what it means to you and what we should do about it. In that context, what compels you to still write fiction and this extraordinary crossroads? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, first of all, thanks for doing this, Astrid, and thank all of you uh, for being here on a chilly night. Um, I'm lucky to be uh, here on a Tuesday when you have fewer entertainment options. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, it's great to see you all. Um, you know, there's always something more worthy you could be doing with your time than um, whatever it is you're doing. Um, I think that literally goes for every single person on the planet. You always feel like there's something more pressing. So, okay, let's, let's take this from several directions. One is um, you're not gonna fix the world single-handedly and arguably what the world needs is for people to be doing whatever they do best um, in as, kind and conscientious a way, conscientious a way as possible. Um, and actually, I think writing novels is what I do best. So, um, but there's also, I mean, it, 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 again, speaking to all of you, um, there's a, I went through this question in a really serious way in the 90s when I was despairing of why one would bother writing novels in a world that didn't seem to care about them. And, um, one of the simple answers to that question turned out to be there are people who care about books and if you are someone who can write them, um, there's, you're, you're, you're doing your community a favor. Uh, and and there is, it, it, it's not service in the sense that I'm feeding the homeless or um, coming up with a solution to climate change, but it, it nonetheless feels um, purposeful, like I'm, I'm helping. For those of us who are readers, it is a wonderful experience living in the worlds you create. Crossroads is going to be a trilogy. Uh, it's said to be going to be a trilogy. It's said to be going to be a trilogy. 
So I have questions. You are well known for writing about relationships and family dynamics. What is it about this story or this family, the Hildebrandts of Chicago, that might become a trilogy? Work is being done to make it a trilogy. <laughs> Contracts have been signed <laughs> on the premise that it will be. Um, uh, in shorthand, it's Actam 2 and Actam 3. That would be a key to all mythologies, 2 and 3. Um, yeah, uh, good question. I think it, I, uh, I, I tried. I tried out in the fall when the book was published, um, that is your spring, that uh, the idea that I had never actually tried a family novel before, even though I have families in my novels. Um, and my thinking was most novels have families in them. Um, and in fact, most literature going back to the Bible and Greek drama have families in them. We don't call the Bible a book of family stories. We don't call the J writer a family writer. We don't call Sophocles a family dramatist. And so it kind of rankled that I was like a family novelist. It's like, I'm just doing what people have been doing for 3,000 years in Western literature. I'm, Telling stories in families, you know, there's a lot of heat in a family. Um, even if you're not Oedipus, there's plenty of heat to be found in families. Um, and I, I had made a conscious decision that, you know what, I'm gonna actually write a family novel now. Um, because those, those also exist. You would call Budenbrooks a family novel. It's other things, um, but it's a family novel. In that you're tracking a, a family over several generations, and most of the scenes take place within the family. So instead of family as an organizing principle or as a narrative convenience, which I think is what it had been in my previous five novels, I wanted to actually bear down on what it's like within a family. Um, and yeah, the Hildebrands, it's not like they were on a table by the side of the road saying for $4 the Hildebrands could be yours and like, oh yes, I think I'll select that family and, and use them as, my as, my <laughs> as the objects of my family novel. Um, I, I, you are desperately trying to make them something worthy of a family novel. That's maybe a better way to put it. Am I answering in too long a way? No, no. Okay. You get to say what you want. Um, I am going to... No, but just like between us. <laughs> just between us. Perfect answer. Um, I'm about to pre-associate it to a little story, but stop me before I do. Go on. I will. Jonathan is very tight. Um, I'm actually surprisingly not. I slept eight and a half hours last night in spite of having flown here yesterday. It wasn't so bad. Okay. All right. Um, excellent, because I'm going to follow you up on that question. As a writer, as an accomplished writer who has written several long novels before, what's the imperative for you to write a trilogy? I'm genuinely fascinated by this, that I get to go back if you meet your contractual obligations. Like, is it fun for you? Is it a challenge? Well, it didn't start out as a trilogy. It started out as a single novel with three parts, and the first part got out of hand. 
Um, no lies, it's simply the way it was. Um, and I had been saying for a long time, I think I've been saying for 40 years, that it'd be good to write six novels. Um, and this was going to be my sixth and presumably final novel, because I thought six novels, that's, that's good. Um, six medium-sized, not long novels, I would stress. Um, although, <laughs> once they're translated into German, they become very long novels. <laughs> um, or, or then there's the Spanish publisher who knows that Spaniards don't, are not like the Spaniards, not, not Latin American readers. Latin American readers are good readers. Spanish people are impatient readers and they like a short book. Knowing that this was a medium-sized book, they'd like put, they made margins that were like this wide so as to, so as to drive the thickness of the book. I was like, wouldn't you want to go the opposite direction and have really thin margins if you're trying to draw in Spanish readers? Anyway, see, I am tired and I have pre-associating. Um, uh, but then it seemed like I could maybe cheat, and by having a single overarching title for the trilogy, I could still be said to have written six novels when it became apparent that the first volume was becoming out of, was getting out of hand. And, um, and I thought, oh, Jesus, that's a lot. Um, but I thought, what am I gonna do if I publish my sixth novel when I'm 64 or something? I might live longer than that. And I'm not happy if I don't have a job. So this kind of guaranteed that the 60s would be taken care of. And <laughs> now, lately, the way the second volume has been going, I feel like a good part of the 70s may be accounted <laughs> for as well. <laughs> I was going to ask you, how long did this one take? And how long kind of do you realistically think it might take? No comment on the second question. Um, the, the first one, the, the crossroads, it, it in, all in all, um, given that I had an idea for Akita All Mythologies only about six years ago, and that I was doing some other stuff, this went, this went quick. It was like two years of trying to figure out some basic stuff, and then two years to write it. That is really quick for That's for, for me, that's quick. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about A Key to All Mythologies. That is the, the title of the trilogy. Uh, I've been reading uh, reviews and commentary on Crossroads. That's a reference to George Eliot's Middle Arch. Some people seem to think that that's um, uh, the hubris of John Franzen. Other people think that you're, it's a joke and it's... Um, uh, God bless the second camp. Yeah, so I wanted to give you the opportunity, tell us, why this subtitle? It's a joke. <laughs> um, it, well, honestly, um, it's, it, I, I'd forgotten the, that title. Um, I read Middle March when I was 22, and because I hadn't been an English major or anything, I, I was supposedly setting out to become a novelist, and I hadn't read very many novels. And so I, um, the year after I finished college, um, I like assembled 10 really thick novels and that was one of them. Um, and I liked it pretty well. 
I liked it a lot, but I didn't remember that title of Kasaban's uh, Unfinished, Stress on Unfinished. He died before he could finish it. Um, that's part of the joke. Uh, it, it didn't really register with me, and then um, many, many years later, uh, I met a woman, um, and we've been together now for 24 years, and she started, she just one day kind of casually said, Akita All Mythologies, like, yeah, oh yeah, Akita All Mythologies. And um, I said, what's that? And she said, oh, you know, it's the person in the grocery store parking lot with a densely printed laminated sheet who has the answer. <laughs> Um, and it might be microdosing with hallucinogens, or, you know, whatever it is. It apparently in her first marriage had been a phrase to refer to that tiresome person who had the answer. And so it became, and you know, what, what it's like when you get together with someone, like old jokes of mine became kind of new jokes in the new household and, and vice versa. And so, uh, and it is, it's the best part of Middlemarch is the comedy, I think. Um, when, when Elliot lets herself be funny, she's at her best because I think she's at her kindness and least, least moralizing. Um, and poor Casaban, he's so funny and so sad and, and so the spirit, it's the, I was, I was sort of, tipping my hat to the, my favorite part of Elliot, which is this, the forgiving comic spirit. It also means that if you don't finish the trilogy, if you don't meet those contractual exactly. obligations. Exactly, the joke pays off either way. Right? You've already told us, you weren't planning that's, to. That's right. So Crossroads is set in the past. It's set in the um, you know, uh, early 1970s. Your other novels kind of have spoken to the present moment, the present decade, shall we say. Why the move to the past? Well, remembering that this was supposed to be a single book, I thought I would, for once in my life, start, instead of like shoehorning in 80-page chunks of backstory, I would, like, I would try to go chronologically. And um, in the event, of course, Crossroads itself has a lot of, a lot of backstory shoehorned in from even further in the past. But um, it was really as simple as that. And then you kind of lopped off the other two thirds and it became a, a novel set in the past. So this covers what, like four years? So three, maybe. Three years, you know, kind of 1970, 71, 72. When you think about, you know, tracking the future story, what happens next, Phil the Hildebrands, do you have, you know, without giving it anything away, do you know what decades or time periods you're going to address? Yeah, these kind of 20, 25 year jumps forward. Um, it starts 50 years before the uh, publication date, approximately. So, uh, 71, 2021. So, yeah, something like that. I interview a lot of Australian writers, and I've interviewed about 60 since the pandemic began. And in yeah, sorry, what do, since the pandemic began? No, before that. Oh, I interview a lot of Australian writers. After that. <laughs> and I've interviewed about 60. 60. Uh, yeah, okay. 60, 60, sorry. Okay, sorry. 
Um, I should enunciate better. Um, and literally less than five of them have found, you know, the last two years creative, have found that they can write or edit or, you know, do anything that they kind of want to be doing. What happened to your creativity during the last, you know, two and a half years? Well, I finished Crossroads. Um, and, uh, yeah, the last maybe 100 pages were written um, in <clears throat> after, the pen, after the lockdown, uh, which I experienced as great. Um, I mean, terrible, and asterisk referring to my enormous privilege uh, in, you know, 30 different ways, but among them the fact that I'm self-employed. And uh, for me it was, oh, we're not going out in the evening and seeing friends anymore. That means I can go to bed when I want to, which is nine. <laughs> that means I can get up when I want to, which is 5.30. And, um, and I, my office uh, is on campus of University of California at Santa Cruz. Um, and it was empty. So there were no annoying students. I I I'm a bad person. Um, I have accepted charity from the university for about 20 years in the form of offices that I've been steered to, where I've written pretty much all my best work uh, in those UCSC offices and. Still, I resent the university, and I particularly resent the damn students who are like <laughs> taking parking places that could have been mine. <laughs> and so none of that, it was like every morning, especially at six o'clock, empty parking lot. Choose which, you know, and then I was like, well, this one's like 34 steps from the door to my office. This, might that one be a little bit closer that I could try on different days? Like which one, which is the ideal parking space because I could have anyone I wanted. And, and no noise um, uh, in the real part of the, there weren't even people using leaf blowers. I mean, it was like super. And I, again, I'm joking in the context of the enormous privilege it was to experience the lockdown that way. Um, and after that, well, you know, you deliver a novel you've been working on for whatever, five, six years, and tough to be creative then. I'd like to talk about faith. You explore faith uh, in Crossroads, different forms of Christianity. That felt, not absent, but it, it wasn't a, a focus um, in much of your previous work, what drove you to explore specifically a family of faith and how they lose it? <clears throat> or gain it. Um, or regain it. Uh, well, uh, so A Key to All Mythology, it wasn't a random title choice. Um, so, <clears throat> Six years ago, I was beginning to encounter um, some public resistance to some of the messages I was putting out in my essays about climate change. Um, and encountering a level of dogmatism among climate activists that 
was disappointing, um, especially since it took the form of personal hostility toward me. Uh, disappointing is one word. Uh, irritating is a stronger word, and we could kind of move up the stairs from there. Um, and I actually had, a, for a long time, had the notion that um, the Protestant religion I'd grown up with, which had the liberal form, which I'd grown up with, had essentially vanished in my lifetime. Um, and I was very attuned to the ways in which it had no sooner vanished from the churches than it had resurfaced in uh, environmentalism. Um, <clears throat> it's actually kind of fascinating how uh, how the salvational aspects and how the guilt aspects of ordinary environmentalist thinking track with uh, Protestant theology. Um, <clears throat> right down to Judgment Day and a fiery, you know, eternity of damnation await, awaiting us if we don't uh, reduce our carbon emissions and so forth, and, and the sense of personal responsibility. You need to ride a bicycle to work. If you don't, then we're all going to hell. Um, <clears throat> so I, 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 it was, and, and also we were beginning to see, um, I was becoming in my old age attuned to the um, to some of the axioms of progressive politics that, uh, that took the form, not quite dogma, but it's like if you, if, you, if you dare to question anything, even in a small way, it is essentially um, an act of blasphemy, uh, which is not to say I'm, don't, I'm not in the main, progressive politically, nevertheless, there are certain questions you can't ask even if they're obvious questions. I will not name them now because it would get me into trouble. But, um, and, and, and meanwhile, uh, you saw, of course, the same phenomenon magnified into an enormous pathology uh, with the conservatives in the United States. And, there was a crystallizing event when I had the idea for the book. Um, it was one evening in Costa Rica uh, when I was talking to someone else who is a scientist, eminently rational, and I suddenly perceived, yeah, but he's got his own mythology. Um, and it's, it happens to be a science-based mythology, but it's no less a mythology. And suddenly I thought, well, now there's something I could write about. I've never really gotten into religion, um, my own childhood religion, uh, and I know it kind of well, but also it would be interesting to track while doing a family story um, the evolution of various mythologies in that same 50-year span, and naturally I would start with the prevailing one in 1971, which was liberal Christianity and its association with um, progressive politics, uh, civil rights, and the anti-war movement. That's a bit of a practiced answer because I have been asked it before. 
I'm really sorry about that. Um, no, I'm, I'm apologizing. I don't like to give practiced answers, but. Well, you mentioned some of the, the essays that you got in trouble for. Um, I've recently read all of those. Um, there was uh, We Should Stop Pretending, and then a, collect a 2018 collection, The End of the End of the Earth. And the first essay in that collection is called The Essay in Dark Times. And I read it twice. I found it very affecting. And I have a quote from that essay here, Jonathan. In that essay, you write, how do we find meaning in our actions when the world seems to be coming to an end? And I wanted to ask that question in front of a few hundred people, uh, not to put you on the spot or anything. Well, it actually goes back to your first question. Why, what are you doing writing novels when um, <clears throat> there are so many more, <laughs> more helpful things you could be doing? Um, <clears throat> uh, the quick answer is, well, it all depends on what you mean by meaning, uh, which is a line from the essay that preceded that one, uh, which is called Save What You Love. Um, uh, <clears throat> and, and again, it was taken up again in What If We Stop Pretending, which is the essay that really got me in trouble with the um, climate activists. Um, would, you know, God, God bless climate activists, if only they'd succeeded 20 years ago. Um, <clears throat> I was a climate activist, and, and in some sense still am. Uh, but the... It's a safe space. <laughs> Suddenly I'm thinking about bedtime <laughs> no um, you know it's 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 it, I feel like t t to reduce what I have to say makes it sound sort of trite um, I can save you if you want and just recommend that everybody read that collection because it's quite good thank you I I'm going to talk about something else I have talked about before in interviews, but um, when the pandemic hit, I was reading Vasily Grossman's great, huge novel, largely about the Battle of Stalingrad, Life and Fate. Um, it's, it's not a perfect book, and it's, it is a long book, um, but it is... It is about a person trapped between ideologies, the, the horror of Stalinism and the even greater horror of Nazism. And, and here's somebody who survived that, survived it in spite of, in spite of being a frontline war journalist, being the premier war journalist uh, in the Soviet Union at the time, which is one reason he wasn't killed in the purges. They couldn't quite couldn't quite get away with it. But they did essentially put him under house arrest eventually uh, under Khrushchev. Um, and it's a miracle. His, I, I just, it's such a moving story. Um, he, he wrote his masterpiece, which is Life and Fate, uh, while more or less under house arrest. He, was, he had been, Stalin had liked his writing. A weird fact about Stalin, he paid attention to writers. Um, he personally judged the literary prizes, Stalin did, and Grossman 
was remarkably, in spite of being Jewish and a little bit ideologically questionable, um, had been very favored. He fell out of favor. He was, he was basically under house arrest. He wrote this book. He knew that uh, there was no way it was going to be published in the Soviet Union, or not for 800 years, is what he said. 800 years from now, people can read this book in this country. Um, that from a rather old man at that point. And he made some copies of it, uh, fearing what would happen. What he feared would happen did happen. They did not arrest him. They came and arrested the book. They searched his apartment. They went to all of his friends, all of his literary friends, his editor, um, <clears throat> everyone, found the other copies, confiscated them. Should have been end of story, except he had, I don't remember the specifics, but he had known some girl as a student and had not seen her in like 40 or 50 years. This is as I'm remembering it, I'm getting the details wrong, but essentially he knew that this is a person that no one knew he had any connection with and he had taken one of his copies of the book and given it to her um, and said, you know what, if anything happens to me, you might want to get in touch with uh, such and such. Um, and that's how the book survived. Anyway, this is a long way of saying that it was, an, it was, it was exactly the book to re be reading in lockdown first because it was very long and you have a lot of time for reading in lockdown, but also because um, uh, we were at that point in the country and are even more so perhaps now caught between these two fairly radical uh, and utterly opposed ideologies both of them given to extremes. And, and the enterprise of that book is to try to figure out, well, what do you do when you're in that situation? And you can, you can, you can kind of pick whatever polarity you might want to be caught with. It might not necessarily be party political <clears throat> or political at all. It could have to do with climate or the environment or whatever. But his answer, to the extent that the book gives an answer, is, you know what matters? kindness, full stop. And um, and I think there's meaning to be found in being kind to other people, full stop. That was a very generous answer, thank you. Thank you. Speaking of kindness, let's turn to Midwestern values. Um, a review in Esquire, I think, um, noted that the Midwest of America is your psychic landscape. Um, you know, you were born in Illinois, you grew up in St. Louis. My husband was born in St. Louis, and I have visited many times. And as an Australian of a certain age and background, I don't understand the Midwest. There's nothing to understand. There's literally nothing to understand. The Midwest is a construct. It is, it is the emptiest concept ever. But my question to you is, when I read your novels, I feel like I understand my in-laws, not because they like the characters, but the space. How do you do that? 
space. You mean like the, the place or the, the place, psychic space? The psychic the, space, the, the mentality. Took me a long time to realize that what I've been calling the Midwest was in fact my mom and dad. <laughs> um, and what I've been calling Midwestern values were in fact Irene and Earl's values. And they were Midwestern, never left, born there in Minnesota, died in St. Louis. You've helped me understand my in-laws, thank you. We're gonna take questions from the audience in a little while. If you have a question for Jonathan, there are two mics in the middle here. So I would encourage you to come down in a few moments. I'm gonna ask, I'm keeping asking Jonathan questions, but if you have a question, please come down and line up. Um, I am going to be that moderator who reminds you to ask questions, uh, not give comments. So please come on down to the middle. But Jonathan. If it's a short, really complimentary comment. <laughs> Jonathan will take praise. For, forgiveness will be given. <laughs> Legacy. Legacy? Yeah. This like is a... the automobile? Oh, I know nothing about cars, so I don't know. But Legacy. You've been writing for decades. You have achieved success. Commercial, literary, however you want to define it. What do you think your legacy is? But perhaps more importantly, what do you want your legacy to be? Now that you've taught me about my in-laws. Um, yeah, I don't... <clears throat> Even if I were somebody who is inclined to think about his literary legacy, um, the spectacle of certain writers who were obsessed and are obsessed with their legacy would discourage me from thinking that way. Um, it's kind of, um, it's kind of un-Midwestern. <laughs> Not that the word has any meaning. Um, <clears throat> to imagine that you're important enough that your legacy matters. And I mean that actually in all seriousness. If you go through life thinking, I am an important author and my legacy must be guarded and cultivated. You know, it's like, what a dick wants to be that person. Um, so I really honestly don't think about it. And so much of it is uncontrollable anyway. Fashions change. Um, <clears throat> readerships change. Readerships disappear. Uh, it, it, like, I have enough things to worry about without that. Um, so, but, but you did, didn't ask, what do you think about your legacy? You said, what do you think it would be? Um, what would you like it to be? Well, any money that's left um, will be going to bird conservation. Um, <clears throat> And um, just really quickly, it's um, <clears throat> the problem with um, NGOs have this problem. They try to get people to commit um, money after they die to, to their organization. And 
if you're, if you're a conservation organization, often what you encounter is people who say, yes, I want, well, if you're a university, they say, well, I want a building named after me. And if you're in conservation, they say, well, I want, I want to set aside some piece of land permanently to be preserved for the beautiful birds. And the organizations are great, really could use operating expenses. And the thing is, people tend not to want to do that because, like, I left you $2 million, and that was like a month and a half of your budget, and now it's gone. That's it. You, you, you like, paid for photocopy paper and some salaries for a month and a half, and that was it? That was like, I, 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 my entire legacy is a month and a half of operating expenses. <clears throat> um, but I've been, on, I've been on a board of one of those organizations for many years, the American Bird Conservancy. I'll give it a shout out, it is a wonderful group. Um, and I've come to realize that what you want is to give a month and a half of operating expenses, because that's, that's what the organization really needs. And if they want to buy some land with it, great. And if they don't, who cares? So well said. Are you going to go back to nonfiction? I know that you've got, you know, two. Am I going to go back to nonfiction? Yeah. I honestly don't know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of not being a young guy anymore. Uh, What's that got to do with nonfiction? Uh, the novel, which I used to be able to do as one of the things I did, now is so hard that I, I, it's, I, I'm struggling to imagine having much energy for anything else. I did um, do a translation project. Translation is kind of, that's not nonfiction, but that's fun. Um, that is recently, I did another translation project. The book is coming out next year. But um, something has shifted I don't think it's because I got shellacked for what if we stop pretending. Um, it's not like I'm I shy from that. I actually kind of relish that. And I also relish it when people come around and say, you know, maybe we overreacted a little bit to that. Um, that's very satisfying. So it's not that I'm afraid of controversy. Um, it's that I become less and less certain that I not only know what the right side of an issue is, but that I even know what the issues are. Um, and that, that, that does seem to be an older person phenomenon. I don't have that kind of, God damn it, everyone is wrong and I am right about this and I am going to show them that they are thinking about it wrong. I'm gonna make fun of them for how wrong they're thinking about it. Um, I just don't have that energy anymore. And, <laughs> when I was struggling with this book, actually, the struggle is just awful. It's two years of just making notes and thinking abstractly about story. And, um, and, I, was, and I was thinking, this book isn't angry enough. I've lost my edge, my angry edge. And I actually, I went through, um, I went through one of my, I went through farther away and I actually, I was in a very bad place that morning. <laughs> You're in a bad place already when you're looking at one of your own books and writing down each the, the title of each chapter and then making a comment after each one because I knew I could tell you, like with one exception, every single essay in that book was something was um, was based on something I was angry about, and 
I'm not feeling it anymore so much. Um, I feel sadness more than anger now. Maybe there's also a little bit of wisdom there too, instead of anger. Yeah, but supposedly if there's all this wisdom, shouldn't that be flowing out in very wise nonfiction? I mean, I don't know. <gasps> oh, I do not know the answer to that question. <laughs> we, uh -oh. I thought we've, we had a question there. We frightened away the one question. And the person has gone. Was that a question? Just answered it. Oh, my goodness. Well, look, there we go. Are there any other questions? That's, that, was a, that was applause for you, Astrid, by the way. You oh. asked, you, you psychically. Hi, I have a question. Um, I absolutely love Great comment. Thank you. Um, there were some days along the way when I didn't. Uh, <clears throat> so yes, <laughs> a lot, lot of doubt. Um, it is a departure from the previous books, uh, and it's, I had one of, again, part of an evolution maybe getting older, I had um, I decided I was no longer interested in big plot elements related to contemporary issues and kind of extreme plots, um, large sums of money, new technologies, earthquakes in Boston in one case. Um, there, like, I, just, I thought, let's just try to write a book about five characters and um, and I'm not going to make any of them particularly extraordinary. Perry is sort of an extraordinary kid um, in this book. He's, he is said to be very smart, and he does give evidence of being very smart, unusually smart. But by and large, it was just like an ordinary family, and it was terrifying, actually, because it's like I just spent like seven pages talking about a former cheerleader's wish to go to a little concert at the church on the arm of one particular boy. Um, I used to be grappling with the great issues of our time. <laughs> uh, and you know what? Seven pages isn't enough. There's about another 10 pages that, that need to be explored this critical problem of will she walk into the church on his arm um, and will everyone see her doing that? It's like to be doing that was like a recipe for doubt, absolutely. We have another question there. Uh, yes. Um, first of all, Jonathan, thank you for all the wonderful books. But my question is, um, do you have a favorite Australian bird? I should have asked that first. <laughs> I know I do. Um, unfortunately, my mind, my mind is suddenly crowded with about 20 I could mention. Um, it's really cheap of me, but single most incredible bird moment in Australia was just about an hour and a half from here. I couldn't find it on a map 
but it's a valley, the Wara Valley, the Yara Valley? Yara. Yara Valley, so, sorry. Uh, I was out with friends, I was not looking at the map myself, um, and we got early to a picnic ground, and there were the lyrebirds, bounding around, bounding up onto picnic tables, flashing their tails, doing that incredible, incredible voice. Like I say, super cheap, but, and the lyrebirds are some of the most ancient, in terms of lineage, birds on Earth. Um, so you're seeing something that very similar birds were probably doing 20 million years ago. Um, and uh, they are passerines, they are songbirds. They're some of the oldest songbirds, probably, arguably, potentially the oldest songbirds in the world. And they've worked some things out in those tens of millions of years. They're just like unbelievable. So, yeah. Over here. Oh, another question. Hello. Thank you. Um, as much as I'm a fan of Franz and the writer, I'm a fan of Franz and the reader. You've connected me to a lot of books and other authors that I love, like The End of Vandalism, The Man Who Loved Children, Independent People, and on and on and on. It, well, and the biggest one is Alice Munro, who, thanks to your introduction to Runaway, is now my all-time favorite writer. Um, so I just thought I'd take this opportunity to maybe ask you to name two or three titles or authors that you may not have mentioned yet in interviews <laughs> that I can check out. Thank you. Um, check out, if you haven't already, uh, an American writer named Joanne Beard. Um, she appeared on the scene with a collection of essays, most of them actually about her childhood, called Boys of My Youth. Um, it also has an incredible first-hand first, first essay, first-hand first experience essay about a mass shooting. Um, uh, in something closer to the present day when it was published. She has a new book out, Festival Days, that's the best thing I've read in a long time. Um, she's, she's just, she's, she's a really big writer who doesn't publish much. Um, so that's one thing. What else might I not have mentioned? Uh, do you like The Wind Up Bird Chronicle? Have you read it? Do you like it as much as I? Uh, that's one of the few I haven't read. I'm not a huge, I've read a couple of other Murakamis, I'm not uh, a huge fan. I've, I've, none of the others do it for me, that one does. Okay. Um, there's, I mean, he's, there's all, he's always got something going on, but that's the, that's the deep one. That one is kind of potentially a life-changing book. So I'm gonna mention The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle as well. Um, I'm so glad you liked End of Vandalism. Like, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Um, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like we all have a reading list. Do you have a second question? I note that you're still standing there. Oh, fair enough. I'm so sorry. Jonathan, I have a final question for you. Okay. You, your books are published around the world. They're translated into German, into Spanish. Do audiences, do readers react differently in different regions? Um, well, you, one hates to generalize on the basis of nationality. 
Um, and, and one's experience, it's like, I can speak about the disastrous appearance I had in Brazil at a public event there. Is that Brazil or was that that one disastrous experience? Oh, I don't know. Well, I don't either, that's the thing. So it's a, it's a bit of a tricky question. Um, I do, uh, <clears throat> one of the reasons I was very happy to come back to Melbourne and do another event uh, for, the, for the Wheeler um, and for Caro, uh, she and I indeed go way back, um, is that uh, I've never had a bad <laughs> experience with an event in Australia. Um, I just, I, uh, I get a really good feeling here. Um, and, and it's actually now enough events, um, as far away as Perth. That Perth event, which was really just a pretext to get HarperCollins to pay for my airfare to Perth so that I could spend four days tracking out all of the endemic birds of far southwest Australia. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'll do an event in Perth. It was a knockout. It was so great. It was like, I, I didn't care that I had to get up at four the next morning. It was like, just like, I want to talk to everyone here. It was, it was that wonderful. And, and but truly, um, it's been that way every time in Melbourne, um, Sydney, Brisbane. Actually, sort of an odd one in Canberra once. But I took that to be sort of a capital city problem. That is definitely a capital city problem. We <laughs> and it was apologize. also middle of the day and yeah. Wrong audience. Yeah. And you know what? It reminded me a lot of Brasilia. <laughs> Look, we definitely apologize for that one. Everybody, we've come to the end of the event. I just wanted to let you know a few things. Jonathan will be signing books. Books will be available from Hill of Content in the foyer. If you would like to get them signed, Please wear your mask in the line. And forgive me if I'm wearing a mask. I'm really trying to stay safe before my big trip tomorrow. Jonathan's going bird watching and must not get COVID. Everybody, can we please have a round of applause for Jonathan? This was Astrid Edwards in conversation with Jonathan Franzen on the Wheeler Centre podcast. This event took place on the 14th of June, 2022. You can find more from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercentre.com.